salespeople think, oh, people buy from people you like. That's not true. It's not a full enough question. The number one question everybody's asking about you is not, do I like you? I've got friends I like a lot. I wouldn't go into business with them in a million years. The actual question everybody's asking about you and your salespeople and your team, and frankly, your kid's spouse, partner, friend, the question that people are actually asking is, can I trust you? Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm speaking with David Horsiger. David is unusual. He did some graduate work on trust because he could see that that was something he was interested in. So lots of people go to uni, take a course, do a dissertation. Hopefully they think whilst they're doing their degree, they'll work out what they want to spend the rest of their lives doing. David knew his thing was trust. And so he's now spent over 20 years researching trust, looking at the data, seeing how trust is built with individuals in companies, in countries, in brands. And he publishes an annual trust survey in the United States. He's got a new book coming out, Trusted Leader. In the show notes, there's a link to some assets that he's making available to listeners of the podcast. But today we talk about what his eight pillars are. These eight pillars that have come out of his research. And he says his publisher wanted it to be three or five or seven or something. But the, the data says there are eight things that underpin how we trust each other. And I think he's right that trust is where it's at. When he thinks about, you know, companies saying they have a sales problem, they really have a trust problem. There's something about the character or the clarity of their message that's not getting through to clients. When a leader can't bring his team with them, it's a trust issue. And so we talk about the eight pillars, what they all are, some case studies and some some observations, some hints and tips along the way. Uh, We have a fantastic conversation. And I'm absolutely sure you'll enjoy it. Dominic, it's great to be here. David Horsager, CEO of Trust Edge Leadership Institute. And I just, I research and trust and how it affects the bottom line. And then we use that to develop trusted leaders and organizations around the world. Everything from global governments to pro sports teams to uh, corporations. And, uh, you know, that's what we do. So the, a question that springs to mind is why? Because you could do anything like why trust? Well, so if you go back to my original work, grad work, almost two decades ago, and all the work we do out of the Institute, we put out one of the biggest study, bigger studies on trust and leadership out of North America. Some would say we're the most researched on it in this way. Basically, I kept finding and now keep finding 
that a lack of trust is the real biggest expense, the core issue of leaders and organizations. It's never, you know, you've heard me joke about this, but I, I mean it. It's never a leadership issue at the core. The only reason I follow a leader or not is trust. It's it's unless it's a you know a a, a domineering um, you know dictator. It, it's not a sales issue it, unless it's a commodity. It's a trust issue. It's it's not a marketing issue. The only way to amplify a marketing message is trust. It's not a diversity issue. The biggest diversity study, uh, Harvard Putnam study, shows diversity on its own pits people against each other. Unless you increase trust, then you get the value of diversity. So you want more innovation. There's only one way. You have to increase trust in the team. Then they share ideas. You want more learning in a classroom, there's only one way. You have to increase trust either in the teacher, the content, or the psychological safety of the room. So if most people are not dealing with the root issue, and that's why we do it, because we keep seeing that when you increase trust, you increase output, morale, retention, productivity, innovation, loyalty. You know, you decrease suspicion, skepticism, time to market. If, if you can deal with this lever, I would I would argue that trust is always the leading indicator. Everything else lags. So and and frankly, we just our research, you know, we're not just kind of speakers with eight C words. I, I have uh, this. This came out of my grad work. Then we put out this study every year. And last year. Uh, the eight-pillar framework, how you build trust into leaders and organizations, was just revalidated by an outside university as the way trust is built globally. So I think people have this idea and perspective, but this this is a, a comprehensive way. You and I joked beforehand, oh, I, I wish it was three points instead of eight. Well, <laughs> eight came out of the research, so you're not very trusted unless you hit all eight, right? But what, what, when you did your, I mean, this is, so this is your life's work. Right. And so was the grad was the grad work completely accidental and you just stumbled across something that's then been your life's work? Or was there something in your grad work where you're going, ah, what am I going to do here? OK, so here's a here's a unlike some I actually before my grad work, I kind of had this epiphany, not so magical or anything, but no pixie dust. Just <laughs> I was just uh, Lisa and I, my wife and I, this is before kids were at an event in Phoenix, Arizona, I'd been asked to teach some leadership. I'd built some leadership curriculum, some different things. And these people were talking about their problem. I'm like, that night, Lisa and I are on the deck of maybe the nicest resort we'd stayed at till that point at th- this place. And, and I'm like, the problem they think they're having, that's, it's not that, pro- it's not a leadership problem. That's a trust problem. And then I started looking at this other issue. It was a sales, ah, it's not a sales issue. That's a trust issue. And so I started to look at trust differently. That led to my grad work. When I went into my grad work, unlike some, though, that like kind of find their dissertation later, I was actually actively looking at trust already. And there was almost there was very little research at that point in the business space on trust and leadership and and business. There was psychological Oprah type, you know, things, but not like in, in business and how it affects the bottom line and all that. So that became interesting to people. We started to use it in companies. We saw attrition in, in one of the first companies we went into deeply, attrition dropped by millions and they attributed it to this trust work. And then we started using it and someone said, well, we tripled sales using it. And then we saw, and we had people say that saved my marriage. So we saw it work personally and professionally. Now, because of that, you know, we built this on case studies and impact. And I, I just don't think, I think most people are solving the wrong issue, not the root issue. I believe it's always a trust issue, not with ego. I know consultants can come on. Oh, I know it's only my way, but I, I, I just, I, I am not saying I know how uh, to do everything. I'm not even saying I know how to apply the eight pillar framework. I do believe it's always a function of these eight. And most people, you and I joke before, it's like, it's not a communication issue. It's one of these eight communications happening all the time. Hateful communication isn't trusted. 
you know, compassionate is. Clear communication is trusted. Unclear communication isn't trusted. So, so when you get to these eight that, that actually drive trust, then you actually start to solve the real issue, whether it's, you know, bribery issues in East Africa, team issues in the New York Yankees, or, you know, sales issues on FedEx. Just sticking on sales, you said somebody had said to you that they had tripled sales and you mentioned sales earlier. So I would say even those clients I've got who are growing astronomically fast would probably want to still want to probably grow faster. How does trust show up in your model and how does it impact sales? Let's pick that before we dive into the model so that people are thinking, why am I listening yeah, okay, to this so trust stuff? Let, let- yeah, so let's just think about it. Just without all the grad work and research and everything, just think about it simply. Like you think what impacts time or costs or these kind of things. So it's always driven by trust or a lack of trust. I mean, trust speeds everything up. So let's go simple. Why do I have a lock? There's only one reason. Because I don't trust you. That's the reason I put a lock on something. So that's a good little symbol of a lack of trust, a lock. So what is a lack of trust there cost? Well, it costs me money. I got to buy the lock. The biggest cost though is time. Now I have to open the lock every time I go through the gate. So you just, just because of a lack of trust, I cost time and I cost money. Now there are a whole lot of other costs. You, you could say, hey, write a text to someone you trust. How long does that take? Boop, quick. Now try to write a text to someone you don't trust. Anybody. Uh, mm, how are they going to take this? How are they going to take that? How are they going to be a doubt, right? So now that just costs an enormous amount of time and stress and everything else. So, so when you think about it in terms of sales, just quickly, where you have a lack of trust with a potential client or a client or a customer, you always, it's always costing time and money. So if you increase the lever of trust, if you increase trust, all of a sudden the sales speed up. They get more loyal. I mean, this is the problem. You know, even people people do engagement surveys, and, and, and engagement is good to have. But what we kept finding is the only way to increase engagement in an organization is increase trust. Not engage. You don't increase gauge, engagement with engagement. Net promoter score, NPS score. It's a great idea. Referral. It's all about referrals, right? The study kept saying. You don't get referrals with referrals. The only way to increase referrals is increase trust. So when we, when we change that lever of trust, all of a sudden, oh, we got more referrals. Oh, we got more. So we have ways of measuring trust and then closing those gaps. And that's what we're about. Fantastic. So uh, as we were saying earlier, there's a sort of three-legged model of trust, which, which the, the... No. <laughs> we say this, hey, before you get to that, I'm going to tell some of your salespeople that are listening something. Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to break a myth really quick before we get to your little want to scale down eight to three. No, um, I don't want to scale it out. I, I, no. I, I, I want to use myself as a guinea pig. I'm j- I'm joking too, but but it's true. I mean, it, it, that was the problem. Is I, I remember someone even says said in my first book, the publisher said, you know, seven would sell better than eight. I'm like, hey, I talk about trust. There's eight that came out of the research. I got to give them all eight. I can't like, I'm going to hide these, you know, oh, three, three points in a speech sell better. Why don't you just hide the others? You know, it's like, but, but let me say this here. Let's debunk a myth for your salespeople. Salespeople think, oh, people buy from people you like. It's not true. It's not a full enough question. The number one question everybody's asking about you is not, do I like you? I've got friends I like a lot. I wouldn't go into business with them in a million years. (laughs) The the actual question everybody's asking about you and your salespeople and your team, and frankly, your kids, spouse, partner, friend, the question that people are actually asking is, can I trust you? 
It's not, do I like you? Trust is way higher than being liked. And if you can answer that question, then sales go up and results go up. So, okay, we can go into any model you want. Well, it's, really, well, I was, uh, it's interesting because so often with the sort of small, mid-sized businesses that I deal with, one of the, one of the conundrums that the CEO is challenged with is he, he, he gets to a point where he thinks he's the bottleneck in sales. And so he decides to take himself out of sales and he hires a sales guy. And then, well, that doesn't work. So he does that again, and then that doesn't work. And it's because the thing is, when he's, he might not be a natural sales guy. Certainly the tech firms I work with, often people are technical. But the thing is, when they're sitting opposite a potential customer, the potential customer's looking at this guy and he's thinking, I trust him. And then he hires a sales guy and the sales guy turns up and they're going, ah, white socks, pointy shoes, too much gel in his hair. I don't trust this guy. But somehow that's, difficult for people to see. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and I mean, authentic, authenticity wins every time. It doesn't mean you can't train salespeople, but you have to be, have the right fit. What do they look like here? What, it, how did, you know, you have to, you have to train salespeople, frankly, against these eight pillars. They have to have these eight, you know, there's so much more we could say about, but the, the clarity is one of the pillars. Let's say, uh, well, not let's say it is. So clear, people, people trust the clear and mistrust or distrust the ambiguous. Well, as an example for sales, often salespeople, you know, clarity as a pillar, you know, affects everyone. So let's, you know, leadership. Okay, maybe if I'm clear about the vision, that would be helpful as a leader. Uh, as a teacher, maybe the maybe the kid students don't like that teacher, not because they don't have high character and compassion, and that kind of thing, but they're not clear about the assignment. So the t- kid students go home every day frustrated because that teacher was unclear about the assignment. So because of a lack of clarity, lost trust, right? But what about the salesperson? What we see is there's a lot of salespeople pointy shoes or not, that are really clear about how cool they are, how long they've been in business and how, all that, but they, <laughs> you know, but, but they're not clear about the benefits of that product to me. So all of a sudden they don't have buyers because they're not clear about the right thing. And if they got clear about the, how that would benefit me, how that would actually help me, how it's different and valuable and would help me, all of a sudden they start to sell. We, I did some work with a client and they had 122, 121 slides in their deck, which their sales, their sales pitch was to turn up and run through it. And I think it was slide 17 said they had 34 staff in Stockholm. And, and it's like, does, is, have you ever met anyone who cares about that? And they're like, yeah, but the senior partner's really his thing and it's, it's important to him. And it's like, it's not important to the customers ever. <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect example. Go through, cut everything that isn't, clearly important to the customer yeah that would be that would be a short deck for most people then because most people turn up and talk about me 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 exactly. me yeah totally <laughs> well i often my, my my i often say to people particularly around like job ads you know like you look at a job ad this is a company how cool are we uh this is everything that you need to bring nuclear physicist even though we're only after receptionist and here's some benefits you get time off which isn't a benefit it's a statutory right and 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 people are like nobody good applied and it's like yeah but think about that as a date you go on a date you spend the first third of the date just talking about you you're going to be on your own when it comes to dessert like you should have just got up and left (laughs) exactly exactly so what so clarity Okay, so so I I for context, I'll just give you all eight 
we can speak all day about each of these. There's a, so much to all this content. <laughs> it's your life's work. Yeah, it is. It is my life's work. And I'm passionate about it. And and so we solve against each of these. That's where the, the new book, Trusted Leader, it gives them some tips and takeaways they can use tomorrow morning to, to uh, gain trust as a leader. But I'll give you all eight just for context. And they are C words, even though they came out of research there, they're for clarity. They're marked by a word that starts with C. That doesn't mean it's uh, some motivational idea. They're research funnels. And they were relatively co-equal. So you could have or want different ones for different areas. And really to gain what we've come to call the trust edge or be a really trusted leader, you need all eight. Number one is clarity. People trust the clear, mistrust or distrust the ambiguous or the overly complex. Overcomplexifying is just as big of a problem as ambiguity. Number two is compassion. We trust those. We found we trust those that care beyond themselves. So if I feel like you don't care at all about me, I don't tend to trust you. I don't want to be accountable to you. Number three is character. We trust those that do what's right over what's easy. People think they can't do anything about this after 14 or 16 years old, and it's not true. You can actually, we have a seven-step process for how you drive high character into an organization. Like many organizations and sales teams actually are incentivized against the character they actually want to see in their team. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, all the time, all the time. So leader, and it's the same with some of our work in parts of the world. It's like the 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 incentivization of bribery is getting the things they don't want in a country or a culture, right? So you have to figure out how you're going to de-incentivize that, whether it's a sales team or a, a country. The fourth pillar is competency. So this is why I might trust Dominic to take my kids to the ball game because of his character and compassion. I may not trust you, though, to give me a root canal, right? Because of competency. And this, this, this would be for your leaders or salespeople. You know, if you're selling the way you were 10 years ago, I don't trust you. If you're leading the way you were five years ago, I don't trust you. You've got to stay fresh and relevant, capable and competent. And there's there's a whole lot to that being an ongoing learner and staying competent in the area you want to be trusted. There's several competencies, whether it's um, emotional uh, or IQ. We we call it TQ, tr- the trust quotient. You know, you've got you've got IQ and EQ and uh, and trust, which is the ethical an ethical part. So. Next pillar is commitment. We trust those that stay committed in the face of adversity. So if you think of anybody in life or history that's left a legacy, mom, dad, you know, first grade teacher, uh, Mandela, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Jesus, or Joan of Arc, you'll find somebody that's, you know, was trusted because they were, they were committed to a cause often beyond themselves. And um, I could come back to this one and tell you in one sentence how you rebuild trust. But anyway, that's the commitment pillar. And the next pillar is connection, the willingness to connect and collaborate with others. I like the work right now in the last several years by the uh, on the myth of genius that basically shows nothing great's ever been done alone. It's a historical myth that Darwin invented evolution on his own, that Edison invented the light bulb on his own, that, you know, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin on his own. I mean, not, everything that was ever great was actually a, a pretty significant team in, in many ways. And it, it always takes this, this connect each of these pillars. If I go into an organization, especially a bigger one, we look at for counter forces of trust under this pillar, uh, a common counterforce is something you might call or we call siloing, right? If I see siloing in an organization, I know I've got a counterforce of the connection pillar. If I see a bunch of arrogance in an organization, I know I have a counterforce of competency because they think they know it all. If I see any of the isms in an organization, I know I've got a counterforce of the compassion pillar, right? So 
So then uh, the next pillar is contribution. That's that's the, the number one word that came out of that research funnel on contribution was results. We trust those that contribute results. You've got to you got to deliver else. So it's easy for you to say, oh, I like compassion. Yeah, and I like I like character. But, you know, what's hard to do is deliver results and have high character and compassion. It's hard to, you got to have all eight. So you can deliver results for a while and you don't have compassion or character, you're going to lose. You can not deliver results and just have compassion and character. And I won't trust you either because think about it. I, I'm going to go in for amputation of my leg and the surgeon cuts off the wrong leg. We got a problem. Might be the most compassionate surgeon ever. We got wrong result, right? Final pillar is consistency. We call it the king and queen because you're really trusted for whatever you do consistently. And this really matters for sales folks, but it matters for everybody. And that is, this is, if you're late all the time, I will in fact trust you to be late, right? So <laughs> <laughs> you're, trust, you're trusted for whatever you do consistently, so good or bad. So this, this, um, the only way to build a reputation is con- sameness, consistency. The only way to build a brand is consistency, sameness. So, I mean, that's a brief on the eight. And, and frankly, I mean, I really, without ego, I know here you are over there talking to an American today that thinks they know it all. I don't. I do not. I believe without ego that you can solve every organizational leadership issue against these eight. It doesn't mean it's easier. I know it all. It just means when you have this language, you can solve against those. And we've seen it globally. And I can talk about global contextualization and all that. But just just think about this for a moment. Like I said, it's never a communication issue. Communication is happening all the time, one way or another. Hateful communication is not trusted. Compassion it is. Clear communication is trusted. Unclear isn't. High character is low character. You can do this with everything. And they work together. You could say, well, we've got a strong vision. We shared it at the annual meeting. We've got clarity of vision. But you don't have clarity because you're not sharing it consistently every other week. So because you lost consistency, you lost clarity. So there's a lot of ways we could talk about how they mix together. And what I mostly share is in the book and in our work, deeper work and coaching program is how you actually apply this tomorrow morning. That's fab. Uh, is any one of them number one? I mean, you said they were all sort of equally weighted. It's, and can you change them all? So I was just thinking if I think about the work that I do with CEOs and their teams and some of the teams that I've worked with over time have definitely had some of that siloed counterbalancing, countervailing force against trust. Do you have to remove the people? Do you have to swap some people out or do you change? Can you change it? Some, first of all, yes, I've seen amazing change. Secondly, sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do for an organization and the mission is let go of some people. And frankly, for that person that isn't a fit, let's say. So it absolutely can be. I mean, to that point, one organization I worked with, they had a, a vice president. And nine directors. And eight of those directors were fantastic. One of them was a sloth. Terrible. Who does everybody hate? Not the sloth. They hate the vice president because he's not doing his job. Right? So there's a time and a way when we lose trust in change and, and, and those kind of things. It's not usually because of what we do. It's how we do it. Often, so many people lose a whole lot of trust because of the way they deal with change. In fact, frankly, I should just make a little quick point here. If you have crisis, you have terrible situation, you have an incredible opportunity. If you think you have a lot of change right now, everybody's whining about change. Your fastest opportunity to build trust is not in first interaction. That's a good time, but the fastest opportunity to, to increase trust is in crisis. 
Over here on the on this side of the pond, if you take George W. Bush, President George W. Bush, when was he most trusted as president? The week after 9-11, when the towers got run into by planes, that was because of the way he dealt with that. That's why his ratings were the highest that week. Um, so how how you deal in change matters. I think that's really interesting. The, when, you, when you were talking about those vice, uh, how those directors viewed their vice president, I couldn't help think about examples where I've sat next to somebody and I'm thinking, why is the boss so blind? Like this guy's an idiot. And, and you're absolutely right. You don't, you don't, I don't think to myself, I hate the idiot. The guy sitting next to me who's totally incompetent. I think, why does the boss, how does he not see it? And, and obviously in those organizations there uh, must have been a culture where me having that conversation with the boss wasn't, wasn't possible. Right. So a lack of psychological safety that you mentioned at the beginning. The reason your work is so important around this is that, you know, um, I've seen, I, I'll give one more example of, a, you know, what happened in Kenya, which, by the way, this is beyond my work, too. It was a, a treat to be a, alongside some things here. But basically what happened there when when Rafael Odinga and, and, and President Kenyatta, after all fierce bloodshed and all this, when they actually, after over years, ended up coming together, it became known as the hug shake when they kind of publicly hug shaked, uh, first of all, shook hands and uh, publicly and then hugged. Nobody ever thought it would happen. So now they've even aligned on some things for the sake of the future of the country, which is pretty unbelievable to just go back 10 years or a little more and think they would never get on the same stage and that kind of thing. So I've seen things and, you know, whether we've been intimately involved or not, where really huge transformations have happened and trust has been rebuilt. But there is a time when um, you have to, you know, move, move forward with or without certain people. I've seen organizations apply our work, a, a big $300 billion organization, apply it kind of in the middle. And I've seen them apply it at the top. It's much better to apply at the top. I mean, when you can apply, I think you say something about how if leadership can't do it, no one else will do it. Well, how do you say that again? I remember. I, well, I, I, I said no company can outperform its leadership team. Right. And they cast a long shadow, don't they? Exactly. And that's why if we can start, if we can create this trust at the top, we have a chance at cascading this through culture. And we have a way we cascade throughout organizations. And by the way, this doesn't mean be perfect. I am so imperfect at the very things I teach. And in fact, <laughs> I talk about it. You know, I, I talk about it. But you can do something about it. And if you can help the leadership team increase trust, be example, um, I might want, I want my babysitter to be very high character with my kids. I might want my surgeon or pilot, maybe my pilot, I don't even know if I care as much about compassion as I care about competency, right? They better, right? So um, now to be a, a trusted leader in the way we talk about it though, we really do want to have all eight. And in the research, they're relatively co-equal, even though you might weight some more or less based on their role. But basically, you, you do want all eight as a brand, as an organization. But if, if I didn't know where to start, like if I was just, I don't get to talk to your, your audience all the time, I would list those eight down and I would underline a couple. I think, hey, we're doing pretty well at these. Great. Good job. I would take one, pick one, even from what you know in our short time together, and we're going to give a bunch of free assets. I think we promised your group, www.trustedleaderbook.com slash melting pot. We have a bunch of 
extra things just for your your audience. But I think you, you could take and, and circle one and say, which one, if we did, if we built this pillar with a certain audience, maybe it's with our sales team, maybe it's with clients, maybe with each, each other, you just pick an audience you want to build consistency with or clarity or whatever. If we did a little building right here, it would make a big difference. That would, that would impact us and focus on that and how, 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 say, how am I going to do that? Okay, then how are we going to do that? Okay, then how are we going to do that until you're going to do something today or tomorrow and and pick that? If you look at that list of eight and you're like, I don't even know where to start. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know. We got a lot of work to do or, oh, we're pretty good. All of them are kind of the same. If you don't know where to start and one doesn't jump out to you, of course, we have six assessments that can help, but basically just on your own, if you don't know where to start, pick clarity because what do, what do we know? Changing character quickly, that's difficult. Changing commitment quickly, that's difficult. You can change clarity and you can start to see results in two weeks. You pick clarity of expectations of your team, you get really clear, all of a sudden the team works better. You pick clarity but of, of for your salespeople of, of getting clear about the benefits of that product to your people, your sales change. You pick clarity of vision, you start to get more unity. You pick clarity of values, you start to get higher character and commitment. So you, you, if you want to start somewhere, you want to see results quickly, you could just start with clarity as an example in a specific way. You know, not every kind of clarity. You got to clarity what? Clarity of expectations, clarity of vision, clarity of benefits. But you could start there and you'll start to see this model work. Because they all affect each other, all eight. I think that's fab. You, I think when we were talking about commitment, or no, consistency, I think you said, was it consistency you said that you could, how, how to rebuild trust if you've lost it? Commitment was that one. And that, that, that so in the first book, I think, you know, we have a 10-step process if you're a big company for how do you rebuild trust, whether you're, you know, some big company that had an oil spill or whatever, or whether you're an individual. And I guess my point under rebuilding trust is, it all comes down to one thing, whether you're a big company or an individual. I got a friend of mine, CEO from the Netherlands, came to America. And he got put in this team. He was a CEO and he was working with this group. And we'd got to know each other as friends. And, and I said, what do you know? What's the first thing you notice in America? And I don't know if this happens in the UK or not. But he said, first thing I noticed, David, you want to know the truth? At least on this team, you got a bunch of lying apologizers. <laughs> Now, this was not my company team, but this is we were working on, right? And he said, he said, they all say they're sorry all the time. And they don't mean it. This guy comes in every day. He says, I'm sorry I'm late, but he's late every day. So we don't trust. We never rebuild trust on the apology. People think they can just apologize all the time and rebuild trust. I'm not saying you don't apologize. We, we uh, Apology opens the door of communication. Uh, being sorry, that creates empathy. It doesn't mean don't apologize. I'm just saying you don't rebuild trust until you make and keep a new commitment. Might start with an apology, but you haven't rebuilt trust. People want to just apologize and think they rebuilt trust. Not true. I do think that, that, that I, I do love the difference in culture. And certainly the Dutch are known well, certainly, as I look at as, as I look east from the UK to Holland, that and and I've worked with a number of people from Bulgaria and Poland, and that sort of directness yeah. goes up and up and up, and and then goes down as I go as maybe as I go to the west. Because I was there's a um, a guy whose work I follow, and he said he turned up in the UK, and his his babysitter rang him on the Tuesday and said, "Oh, Friday, I might not be able to make it." And he's okay, fine. Friday comes and the babysitter doesn't turn up. And he said, what he realized was that when somebody in England says, I might not be able to do that, what they mean is I'm not going to do that. But if I just say maybe, then we can avoid the confrontation. Uh -huh. <laughs> so 
And so I, you know, there's, there's so much, there's so much of this sort of trust stuff is also wrapped up in the language and the way we speak, the sort of non-apology apology. And, uh, I'm telling you, I'm not coming and I'm, uh, you know, but wrapped up differently. What, um, what's in, in the new book you've said is uh, the trusted leader. That's about tools to help people lead with trust as opposed to the other one was, was your research based model, which says, here's the model. And you know, and, and I got very application driven. Trust Edge was very, you know, it's easy to use tomorrow too. Even though it's 365 pages, I had to pull 200 pages of research out of it. I still remember the the editor saying, I mean, the the publisher person, the agent saying, hey, we love this work. Now pull out 200 pages. They want to know it was born in research. They don't want to read it. <laughs> you know? So, so um, what happened was with Trusted Leader, two things. People wanted to shift thinking about trust quickly and understand it. So the first part is a story. It's a, a business parable to shift thinking about trust. You know, we trust is a little more complex than we might think. So as an example, we think transparency or vulnerability, that's trust, right? Everything's built on transparency. And that's kind of the business word of the decade, but it's not true. Because some of your kids are so transparent on social media, I don't trust them for a second confidentiality is also trusted. So it's not just transparency for the leader. They have to be as transparent as they can while being as confidential as they ought. There's there's this idea that confidence is trusted. Confidence can be trusted until it leads to arrogance. That's not trusted. Or we can think trust takes a long time to build. Uh, that can be true, but on 9-11, as an example, or crisis, trust can be built in a moment. So we have to shift thinking about this old word. And that that first uh, part just shows the impact of trust and shifts thinking. It's very engaging, fun parable. It's gotten great reviews, so that's fun. The second half is this application section. It, it gives kind of this case for trust with our newest research. And then the eight pillars, we give new takeaways that you can use tomorrow as a leader or an individual or a parent that you can use tomorrow to to drive clarity, compassion, like the the new the spa model of of compassion is in there. The the how 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 method of of clarity. By the way, that clarity model. If you want to learn that little how model, that is how I lost fifty two pounds in twenty seven in in five months in twenty eleven. And that that's just a way of getting clear in a way that leads to hope. It's a really powerful activity. The the trust shield, the new trust shield model, is in there under the connection pillar, and that's just a powerful exercise. So people could say, well, hey, don't you have something other than eight pillars? They're the eight pillars. This is just all fresh ways to apply it tomorrow morning as a leader. So it's a, it's more shareable. It's easier and quicker to read. It's shorter. It's 200 and some pages instead of 300 and some pages. It's really applicable right away. And so it's, it's all fresh, but this is, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm really proud of and excited about this getting in people's hands because they can use it to help themselves. You know, here's one thing you and I both know organizations don't change only individuals do. But when an individual does, then a team, a company, even a country can change. But it takes a, a police officer to change if you're going to start to change bribery. It takes a, a leader to change or the, to cha start to change a leadership team. And then the team to change to start to change an organization. So this, what we went, is very tactical on specific takeaways you can use tomorrow morning under each of these pillars. You said earlier you'd done some work in the middle of an organization. Right. Is that... Is that worth doing? I mean, you know, like if. <laughs> it, it, it can be. 
It okay. can be, but there, there still has to be a leader driving it there. So, and that works more or less in big organizations. That uh, well, you've, got, well, you've, got, to, well, you've got a business unit or a country exactly, or something. Exactly. Right, okay. So you're still dealing with a leader of a business unit. So you didn't get a start at the in the ivory tower of uh, 300,000 employees, but you started over this group and you could start to make change. We have one right now. It's a global pharmaceutical that everybody listening would know and they have to get COVID vaccines, millions all over the place and all this stuff. So in their case, we are not dealing at the top of this company that's massive. We're dealing at the very top of um, a part of the organization, which is 1,100 employees. Interestingly, we've been working with them for over a year. And now other parts of this company, are like, oh, what's happening there? How is that working? How is this working? And even this portion of 1,100 or 1,200 employees is global. And so yeah. because that, it's a C-suite leader it, that's over that, is driving change and committed that, you know, you are being able to have change there. It's just not at the overall top of of, of everything necessarily. Um, but in a small, mid-sized company, you're probably not going to make any progress unless the CEO decides they're going to do something themselves. We have a seven-step process that we say, and, and it, was a, it was inspired by the article in 2016 in the Harvard Business Review that said why leadership development doesn't work, why uh, basically why people waste millions on leadership development, or why it fails and what to do about it. I added a couple points from my own frame of uh, mind from what I'm seeing. And that basically is if you want to see leadership development work or any development, let's say sales development, whatever, you have to have buy-in from leadership. This development has to affect or align with your strategic priorities. You can't just have it out here. Oh, I just feel like doing this now. No, it doesn't, doesn't work. It has to help the individual and the organization. People that want to go in and just help the organization. This is going to help us. It's all about us. No, if we can help that salesperson do better, that frontline person do better, that individual do better, all of a sudden they buy in for the sake of the organization and the organization starts to get better. So there's seven tips or takeaways under that. But I believe you have to have these seven and one of them is you have to have buy-in from leadership because it just doesn't seem to really take hold or last unless you do and i i just one of the things that i think i believe to be true is you know people can want to change so that but they have to have a, a fundamental desire and then they have to be prepared to put the work in and you need those two things are true before you can get any changes is, is one of these eight harder to, to change as an individual? That's a good question. I mean, I think certain character habits are challenging for people, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's where, you know, we have a Trust Edge 360. It's a, and let, you know, people just have blind spots unless you kind of show them how that is impacting them. I mean, it's some of those habits are just, just to the point of habits, period. You know, I used to do this, um, I would ask people in big audiences, how many of you ever want to change a habit? Everybody raises their hand, right? How many want to change a habit? Any habit? They all raise their hand. Then I'll say, okay, all of you, how many of you have actually changed a difficult habit? You've stopped smoking. You've lost 30 pounds or more. Like 6%. Everybody wants to change, says they want to change a habit. But 
either they don't have a pathway for it. They aren't willing to do what you just said. They aren't willing to do the work. Um, they aren't willing. They aren't clear enough. There's a whole lot of things against them. So, so yeah, I have a, actually in this book, I have a little process for habit change at the, under the consistency pillar because we just kept seeing people don't don't have a way to actually or they they the, the other problem by the way Dominic is some people just don't want to enough you, you, <laughs> yeah. they, how do you motivate that i have a very someone very close to me he's going to die of health issues and it's sad for me and i've tried to encourage him and i've tried this but it's like until you decide to eat lift differently or to move a little bit you say you're, you want to, but you, you don't want to badly enough. You, you'd rather be on the couch all day, you know? Yeah, it's terrible. I, or, or the same, but the same in organizations, as you say, when, um, you know, you do, when people do get uh, feedback and they say, oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, look, I'll, I'll fix that. And they just, maybe for a couple of days, you know, they try really, really hard. But those, some of the, Here's, like, ingrained habits are tough. It's tough. Habits are tough. And by the way, they're tough for me too. Like it's tough for everybody. But I will say something that's helped me. And this might be my mix of, of, I want it to be born in research and not motivational cheesiness. But I also am a farm kid, grew up on the farm that needs to be able to use it to do the work tomorrow. Like we, if it doesn't help me, you know, bale the hay or feed the horses or whatever quicker. I don't want it, right? So I, it, I'm really action-oriented on that way. And that's helped us. So that's why even the book was built this way of, okay, I want research, but I need to be able to use this tomorrow morning. And one thing we found to be really helpful for change is if we can simplify it down. I, I, some of my work, when you read the last part of it, is so simple. It's this, here's the ODC model for this. Here's the SPA model for that. Here's the little model. And what we've learned is if we can simplify it down to what people will easily be able to use tomorrow morning to start, they do see change fast because it's it's not just motivating. It's like, oh, I could do that. I can't do all of this. I'm too overwhelmed. I'm not going to do anything. It's like, I can't do everything, but I could do that. And that little thing, starting to use the you know, the, the 90 day quick plan that we offer or the spa method or the whatever I could do that. And then they start to see change. And the only reason I teach this way is because that's what I learned affected me. I just couldn't do the hard stuff, but if I could boil it down to this, oh, wow. All of a sudden I lost 52 pounds in five months. Right. Do you keep it off? I've kept it off. Yeah. That's un uncommon. I don't know if you have a uh, uh, we, have, we have a, a TV show that we've, it has been here in America for a long time, The Biggest Loser. Right. <laughs> and uh, and it's like it's like the worst possible way. It's like I, at one point, I probably won't have the data right, but at one point of, of 119 people that have been through that, like six people kept it off. Everyone else was the same or more than they were before. It's like the not the right model to follow yes. for actually. People don't just get to go to a resort for six months in normal life, right? So then they go back and they, they go backwards and you have, to, you have to think about it differently. What's the lifestyle going to be? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, David, what is it you know now? As you look back, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I, you know, I was fortunate to be able to start to see this, this trust work early on, um, you know, in a way in my career, but I wouldn't mind seeing it even earlier. Like once I could define it as a trust issue, once I saw it as the root issue, that, that helped me actually solve the real issue. And this is my concern for most people is that uh, they aren't solving the real issue. And once they see it as a, so in my work, in this work, there's lots I'd like to know about parenting my teenagers still, but, but as far as this work, 
once I could see it as the root issue, we actually started to solve the right thing. And that I wish I would have seen earlier because I, at first I even thought, oh, trust, that's a soft idea, right? It's a soft skill. It, it's a, it's mamby-pamby, soft kindergarten, you know, kind of whatever. And you know what? It's hard. One, it's hard. It's not. And once I started to see that, we started to solve the real issue. I would have liked to just been confident about that early on. Funny enough, in my career, the whole word trust has changed because, you know, Forbes in 2014 made trust the business word of the year and great places to work through pushed out engagement, put trust as the number one metric. You know, a lot of now I don't have to argue the research. (laughs) 20 years ago, I had to 20 years ago, there was no space on the bookshelf for a book on trust. I had to argue the bottom line impact of this. Now, Everybody's writing about it with and without research, you know. Yeah, so. Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Nothing about trust there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, what Along the way, what books have you had an impact on you or have you read recently? Anything you think people should pick up and read? I'll give you something other than trusted leader. <laughs> um, I, there's probably several I could think of, but this really hit me. And I just uh, actually interviewed on uh, interviewed him on my Trusted Leader podcast. Horst Schultze wrote Excellence Wins. And he one he's just amazing. If, if anybody's watching by video, and I don't know if this is only in podcast, but you can see the notes. I don't always do this on every book. This book just came out not long ago, but he is the founder of the Ritz Carlton Hotels. Now he founded a new group that just got named last year. His Bali location got named as the top hotel in the world. I think it was the Bali location, a Capella Hotel Group. But he is, you know, he's he's just an amazing gentleman. But he talks about excellence and about customer service in a fresh, simple, usable way. And so I would recommend. Here's one for you. Excellence wins. It's it's fab, isn't it? I had him on the. I had him on here a little while ago, and I. It's it's funny. I because they'd when he was at Ritz Carlton, they won the Malcolm Baldridge Award for service quality twice in the U.S. And I I hadn't realized the impact that it had on on rack space, but we we we'd obviously been and sucked so much out. So things that I thought were our business in talking to him, I realized that they were all things actually we just stole from Ritz Carlton. Absolutely. <laughs> well, a lot of people have, you know, do you, uh, I don't know if you know, like Chick-fil-A is a yeah. big, uh, do you have that in yeah. international? Well, we okay. might have, but I haven't, I, okay. haven't, I can't remember saying. I mean, well, here, here's a quick little thing on Chick-fil-A. So they're a little bit of a, uh, for some, a political lightning rod because of the ownership, but, but outside of any conservative liberal views or anything, um, in the U.S., the last time I looked at the research, like a Taco Bell average per store revenue was about 460000 a year per store. Then you had KFC was $1.1 million. You go up to Burger King, $1.5 million. There's two big ones, and they are McDonald's and Panera. This is in the U.S. They're $2.5 million per year average per store revenue, except for one. One little fast food restaurant named Chick-fil-A that does not work on Sundays and works less hours, is open less hours per day, and their average per store revenue is $4.4 million. And the difference is unbelievable. But, but Horst, you know, uh, Mr. Schultze, he inspired them. And, and if you go into a Chick-fil-A, you'll know they're going to say, my pleasure. That whole idea of my pleasure, they're, they're trained all these young frontline, it's the same, you know, frontline minimum wage paid people at McDonald's and uh, Chick-fil-A, but they're different. 
You feel that it's not like these guys over here just came out of the womb saying, my pleasure. They got trained, right? They got equipped. They, they're doing it differently. And so it's just amazing. In an inspiring time, Dan Cathy, the owner, was with Horst Schulte and Holstead. Well, this is what we do at Rich Carlton. You should do something different. (laughs) And Dan said, nope, we want that. We're doing that. (laughs) And and so uh, it's a pretty funny story. But that idea of this, this shows a couple things. It shows even even the the top leadership of Chick-fil-A says, it's just chicken. It's the way we do it. And this is why service and leadership and, and, and culture matters is, boy, you feel different at Chick-fil-A. Everybody talks about the feeling, even the, the way the bathrooms are cleaned there compared to almost any other fast food place. It's a part of the culture. And uh, so anyway. Consistency. It, exactly. And it's only chicken. And so it doesn't matter who you are, what the product is, what your commodity is. You probably have more going for it than it's just chicken. And, right. uh, and, and the way in which you deliver it is all important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. David, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Remember, you can give them the, pod, the uh, link in your show notes. www.trustedleaderbook.com slash melting pot for you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.